Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Bob Marley. Please note, in future episodes, I will have information about the release of my novel entitled, Is That Your Final Answer? Now let's get started with our story. The music of Bob Marley is universally recognized as a unique body of work produced by one of the most monumental artists of the 20th century, and Marley's fame and stature has grown exponentially since his premature death in 1981. Today, his instantly recognizable portrait adorning clothing and artwork symbolizes a blissed-out, carefree lifestyle. But Marley's brief life was notably impacted by childhood neglect, third-world poverty, urban violence, and the strife of Jamaican politics that eventually forced him to live in exile in the UK. His Rastafarian beliefs also compromised his health, and his death from cancer was directly attributed to his refusal to implement treatment, which might have saved his life, but clashed with his strongly held spirituality. Robert Nesta Marley was born in Nine Mile, Jamaica, on February 6, 1945, to Sedella Aditha Malcolm and Norval Sinclair Marley. Marley's mother, a Jamaican of African descent, was 18 years old. His father, a Caucasian of British ancestry, was 60. Although Norval Marley has been described as a sea captain, British Army officer, and even quartermaster, he was in fact a laborer and construction supervisor who never saw military action. He lived and worked in Britain, Africa, and the Caribbean, and was employed as an overseer of the subdivision of the rural area around Nine Mile in the Jamaican province of St. Anne. At the time of Bob Marley's birth, Jamaica was still a British colony, and Nine Mile had neither electricity or running water. Although Norval and Sedella, nicknamed City, were officially married, the relationship ended quickly, and Norval Marley would die in 1955. By the time of his death, he was in dire financial straits, provided very little for his family, and saw them even less. Bob Marley spent his infancy in rural Jamaica, but his biological father did remove him allegedly to a boarding school in Kingston when the child was five years old. Actually, Norval instead left him with an elderly woman, and Marley spent the next two years essentially abandoned to the streets of the Jamaican capital. When an acquaintance from Nine Mile recognized Bob in Kingston, his mother immediately came and got him. Marley's subsequent childhood in Nine Mile was difficult. 
his mixed-race identity earning him rejection and derision from both whites and blacks alike. Additionally, his mother was barely eking out a living working in a tiny shop, a situation that eventually prompted her to move to Kingston, 55 miles away. Bob was left with his maternal grandfather, Omeria, a farmer, while City moved in with various family members. The plan was eventually to move Bob to Kingston as soon as possible. During this time period, one of Bob's childhood friends in Nine Mile was nine-year-old Neville O'Reilly Livingston. Neville was nicknamed Bunny, and he eventually became an important part of Marley's musical prominence, but soon left Nine Mile to move to Kingston with his father, Thaddeus Toddy Livingston. Bob's mother was romantically involved with the elder Livingston, another reason for her to move to the capital. She worked mostly as a house cleaner, and in 1957 was able to convince her father to reunite her with her son. Although Marley was enrolled in school, he and his mother would live in various temporary residences until 1959. It was then that her brother, going through a divorce, vacated government housing in the Trenchtown neighborhood in the western area near Kingston. Although Trenchtown was a poor community, the two-story apartment that Sedella occupied was recently built, concrete with shared plumbing and cooking facilities. Highly desirable, it was deluxe accommodation compared to the previously occupied rented shacks or the rural squalor of Nine Mile. Centrally planned with numbered streets, the community contained relatively modern amenities, including sewage and garbage disposal. Bob and his mother would reside at 19 Second Street. Trenchtown was a difficult environment for any resident, but Bob Marley's mixed-race identity made his early teenage years even more difficult. By necessity, he developed a combative personality with a reputation as a street fighter who was better left alone, earning the nickname of Tough Gong, a Jamaican moniker for a tenacious and insightful individual. He renewed his friendship with Bunny Livingston, the two already focused on music, an interest that was a common denominator in the Trenchtown neighborhood. Because most residents had difficulty finding meaningful employment, music or sports became one of the few legitimate escape routes out of the ghetto. Although intelligent, Bob Marley was a lackadaisical student who permanently dropped out of school at the age of 15. Instead, he decided that his future revolved around his musical ability. Most commercially successful artists usually benefit from a mentor or experienced professional initially providing expertise and guidance, and Bob Marley was no exception. Literally around the corner, on 3rd Street, a successful musician by the name of Joe Higgs routinely ran practice sessions with locals he deemed talented enough. There, Bunny and Bob met another aspiring singer named Winston Hubert McIntosh, eventually known as Peter Tosh, and Higgs decided the trio had something special. A fourth individual, Junior Brathwaite, was added as well as a pair of female backup singers. This group would perform locally with various mundane names until it was decided that The Wailers was an appropriate title. In Jamaican culture, to wail, W-A-I-L, was to plead from the depth of the soul to God for justice and deliverance from misery, economic and otherwise. But music was not Bob Marley's only occupation. He did find work as an apprentice welder in a small shop, where he managed to seriously injure an eye during this employment. During the welding job, he made the acquaintance of one Desmond Dakers, 
another welder and aspiring musician. Dacre sang during the workday, invoking the newly evolving Jamaican style known as ska and exhibiting obvious talent. Unlike Marley, Dacre's already had successfully obtained a recording contract with a ska label owned by a young music producer, Leslie Kong. With Dacre's blessing, in February 1962, Kong brought Bob Marley into the studio, and at age 17, the teenager recorded his first songs with some of the best Jamaican studio musicians on the island. Judge Not and One Cup of Coffee were the singles that emerged from these sessions, and while only modestly successful in Jamaica, they were a major step forward for Marley's career. Bob Marley also remained grateful to Dakers, who eventually changed his name to Desmond Decker, became a major Jamaican star, and achieved international fame, notably for his top 10 1969 hit, Israelites. In 1962, Marley's personal life also remained in turmoil. Based on Toddy Livingston's roving eye and blatant relationships with other women, his interactions with Bob's mother were volatile and unpredictable. Despite the birth of their child, Pearl, in 1962, Sidella suddenly announced that she was going to visit her sister, Ivy, in Wilmington, Delaware. In her absence, another of Sidella's sisters took care of the infant. Whether deliberate or happenstance, City would not return to Jamaica for many years, severing her relationship with Toddy Livingston. Although she asked her son to come with her, he refused, understanding that his best shot at musical success was in Jamaica. Marley's domestic situation was further complicated when Toddy Livingston moved into the apartment on 2nd Street, bringing another mistress with him. The situation became so unpleasant that Marley eventually left. He was 18, unemployed, and homeless in one of the poorest cities of the Third World. Despite spending much of his time literally residing on the streets or eventually living in the kitchen of a benevolent friend, Marley continued to rehearse and perform, mostly with Bunny and Peter Tosh. They hoped to gain attention from any number of Jamaican recording entrepreneurs eager to find new talent. It would be at least a year of additional street life and couch surfing before a break materialized. One of Leslie Kong's competitors, Cox and Dodd, operated an enterprise known as Studio One. Dodd was a major player in Jamaican live music, the unique Jamaican presentation known as the sound system, turntables with giant speakers that were a precursor to today's DJing phenomenon. He was also a hit maker with Commercial Instincts, who auditioned musicians at his recording studio on a weekly basis, and a mutual acquaintance got the Whalers entree in late December of 1963. With a house band known as the Scatolites, the Whalers sang a few cover tunes, much to Dodd's indifference, until they played Simmer Down, an original composition by Bob Marley. The material already evidenced social awareness, lyrics directed toward the younger, wilder, and occasionally criminal elements of urban Jamaica to calm down. In a moment seemingly scripted out of a Hollywood film, the record company Kingpin sat up and declared the song an obvious hit. The band immediately recorded a polished version and were surprised at hearing it being played within days at Dodd-sponsored sound system dances throughout the Kingston area. With the ability to record, manufacture, and Dodd's access to local radio airplay, the tune literally became an overnight sensation 
and a Jamaican number one hit in January of 1964. It sold 80,000 copies on an island of approximately 2 million people. Despite their success, the Whalers saw little monetary benefit from their new status. Dodd was a typical musical entrepreneur of the period, who paid his sessions musicians a tiny daily wage and kept his contract talent on a small retainer. Despite the success of Simmer Down and other subsequent Studio One recordings, the Whalers received a few pounds a week and additional money for clothes worn while performing, but that was it. Years later, they recalled this period as both frustrating and humiliating, successful performers who were so broke they were still occasionally even barefoot. For two years, the Whalers habitually occupied the top Jamaican music chart positions, but got absolutely nowhere financially. Finally, Bob Marley became so fed up with the situation that he decided that he would join his mother in Wilmington, Delaware. He hoped to find work and save enough money to bankroll the Whalers' own production and recording efforts, allowing the musicians to retain control over the profits. Before leaving, perhaps to reassure her, Bob made the decision to marry his longtime girlfriend, Rita. He promised to return, and the official wedding on February 10, 1966, underlined his commitment. His wife already had a child from a previous relationship that also complicated any journey to the States. Bob's mother was remarried to an American civil servant, and they lived in a typically American middle-class home that to Bob must have been a veritable paradise. With several bathrooms and his own room, Marley's habitat was luxurious compared to that of most Jamaicans. Unlike Toddy Livingston, Edward Booker, City's husband, was both kind to his wife and generous to Bob during his stay. Marley was able to find work as a janitor at Wilmington's DuPont Hotel, but his stay in Delaware was always meant to be temporary, and between his eagerness to get on with his life and music career, his desire to be with his wife and the cold winter climate, Bob would return to Jamaica after nine months. Because he needed and acquired a Social Security card for employment, Marley was also potentially subject to being drafted into the military during the war in Vietnam. In Marley's absence, one of the most monumental events in the history of Jamaica occurred on April 21, 1966. On this day, Emperor Haile Selassie visited the island for the first and only time in his life. Selassie was a major international figure and one of the few prominent political leaders of an independent African country, Ethiopia. But Selassie also occupied a unique prominence in Jamaica as a literal deity worshipped by members of the Rastafari. Rastafari was both a belief system and a social movement that originated in the 30s in the impoverished Jamaican African community, partially as a reaction to the oppression of British colonialism. The political fundamentals of Rastafari were based on the teachings and beliefs of Jamaican activists like Marcus Garvey. Deliverance from oppression and economic misery would ultimately be delivered by a mass migration back to Africa, specifically Ethiopia, which was referred to as Zion, a kind of promised land. Rastas also referred to Western society and its social, economic, and political institutions as Babylon and designated such figures as the Queen of England, the symbolic head of the entity that had enslaved and colonized Jamaica as the whore of Babylon. With the coronation of Selassie in 1930 and his official title of Conquering Lion of the Tribe of Judah and King of Kings of Ethiopia and Elect of God, 
Rastafarians, who used biblical scripture as the basis of their belief system, believe this ascension was a confirmation of their designation of Selassie as a divine messiah who would lead their deliverance to the African continent. Additionally, Selassie's dynastic House of Solomon claimed to be descended from King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, further enhancing the emperor's image in the eyes of the biblically insightful Rastafarians, who also maintained that Jesus Christ was a black descendant of Kings David and Solomon. Like most belief systems, Rastafari embodied a code of practices and laws that were unique and foreign to members of the general population. A dietary focus on items that were believed to be naturally healthy proscribed items like alcohol, tobacco, shellfish, pork, and even salt. Marijuana or ganja is a biblically sanctioned sacrament to be smoked or ingested as a religious rite. Physical appearance was governed by a biblical adage of Leviticus, which stated, They shall not make baldness upon their head, neither shall they shave off the corner of their beard, nor make any cuttings of the flesh. True Rastas would not cut or even comb their hair, leading to the matting which became known as dreadlocks. While stylish in some circles today, initially this term mocked the non-believers who looked down on the Rasta community with condescension and even dread. Both Bob and Rita Marley were familiar with Rastafari, but the visit of Haile Selassie in 1966 would help cement their status as true believers. In anticipation of the emperor's visit, an estimated 100,000 Jamaicans and many Rastas descended upon Palisados Airport, a throng so huge that when he arrived, Selassie was unable to disembark. The area was so crowded that Rita Marley did not even attempt to access the airport. Instead, she waited along the motorcade route that would convey the African ruler to central Kingston. As she related in her autobiography, she was hoping to receive a sign or affirmation from the emperor personally to signal that Rastafari was the true path. Haile Selassie was believed by Rastas to have stigmata on his palms, and when he passed Rita's vantage point, he looked her directly in the eye and waved the dark remnant of crucifixion clearly visible to her. Rita Marley became an adherent of Rastafari on the spot, and upon her husband's return, she excitedly related details of the entire incident. Marley's return to Jamaica coincided with his own increasing interest in Rastafari. After hearing the details of his wife's conversion, he sought out Mortimer Plano, one of the more prominent spiritual elders in the Rasta community. In fact, on the day of Haile Selassie's visit, Plano had addressed the crowds at Palisados and persuaded the throng to back off from the emperor's aircraft, allowing the emperor to safely leave the plane. For the moment, Plano would serve as Marley's mentor in the ways of Rasta, although eventually Plano's attempt to control the whaler's recording career would sour the relationship. By now, all of Bob Marley's musical peers were also committed Rastafarians, and to further the spiritual awakening, Marley returned to his grandfather's farm at Nine Mile. Omeria Malcolm passed away in 1965, and the vacant property served as the perfect sanctuary for Marley and his young family, Rita having given birth to another daughter in August of 1967. Marley spent much of this time period farming and composing additional songs with his wife. However, he frequently visited his Trenchtown neighborhood to commune with other Rastas and participate in the ritual known as Nation, 
rhythmic chanting accompanied with both music and ganja. He also continued to record with the Whalers on their own Whale and Soul M label, paying to produce the music himself, but allowing Cox and Dodd distribution rights. Again, this led to Dodd pocketing any receipts from these efforts, all quite successful in Jamaica, the final straw for the Whalers who severed any further commercial ties with Dodd. Early in 1968, Bob Marley met another pop musician who was a more positive influence on his career. In the late 60s, Johnny Nash was a modestly successful American pop singer and music entrepreneur who had connections to Jamaica. Nash was hoping to adapt the Jamaican style of music, already referred to locally as rock steady and eventually reggae, into mainstream American music, and he and his business partner and manager, Danny Sims, relocated to Kingston. Although black, Sims had connections to the criminal elements of the more traditional pop music business in the 60s, but he and Nash were immediately intrigued by the Whalers and signed them to a recording and publishing contract. Although the Whaler recordings produced for Sims's JAD record label went nowhere, Bob Marley's first major commercial success resulted from his relationship with Johnny Nash. Hold Me Tight featured a reggae beat and made Nash the first American to record a reggae style top 10 hit outside of Jamaica. Unfortunately for Marley and the Whalers, it would take a few years before Nash composed his signature song, I Can See Clearly Now, an international number one and still an American pop standard. Nash would subsequently release Stir It Up, a Marley composition as another single, but that was all still years away, and the Whalers remained in commercial obscurity. Bunny Livingston would also be hit with a cannabis possession charge during this time period that incarcerated him for several months, ganja quite illegal in the eyes of Jamaican authorities. Once again, feeling as if he had hit a dead end, Bob Marley emigrated to his mother's home in the U.S., This time he brought his entire family, which included a son and a daughter by Rita. Bob spent much of 1969 driving a forklift in a Chrysler manufacturing plant. His wife cleaned houses. This trip, more chaotic and stressful with a married couple and children involved, was not as harmonious as Marley's first visit to Delaware. Possibly to escape this environment, Marley flew back to Jamaica on his own, Rita and family returning later. The Whalers were about to embark on a business relationship with another accomplished Jamaican producer and eventual reggae legend, Lee Scratch Perry. Perry's work with the Whalers is considered a major stepping stone that would lead to breakout success. He refocused the band, getting rid of any ska, brass influence, and doo-wop harmony anachronisms. Encouraging lyrics with a broader social relevance, Perry helped build the foundation for what would become the eventual Whalers sound but Perry was a protege of Cox and Dodd before inevitable disagreement led to the Maverick producer striking out on his own. One business practice he retained from his former associate was stiffing talent on money and royalties, behavior that alienated and eventually ended his involvement with the Whalers. For the Whalers, the association was not a total loss. They convinced two of Perry's sessions musicians and rhythm section, Aston and Carlton Barrett, to work with them full-time. After a disastrous three-month trip to Sweden in 1971 to participate in the Johnny Nash film flop Want So Much to Believe, Bob Marley returned to Jamaica. In his absence, Trenchtown Rock, a song recorded and produced with Scratch Perry in June 1971, 
dominated the Jamaican music world for much of the rest of the year. But the song differed from the other Whaler Island successes in that it discussed Jamaicans living an alienated life in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the world. Its opening lyric, one good thing about music, when it hits you feel no pain, emblematic of music meant to help endure such an existence. From a business perspective, the song also was the first released on the newly established Whaler record label Tough Gong, a tribute to Bob Marley's teenage street name. But despite their record label and artistic success, the Whalers remained business novices and perpetually broke. In early 1972, Sims suggested that the Whalers might jumpstart international appeal by relocating to London. They would open in the UK for Johnny Nash, by now on the verge of breakout stardom. Accounts differ as to what happened next, but the end result was Nash and Sims would contractually part ways with the Whalers to everybody's mutual agreement. Fundamentally, Nash was unhappy with his inability to connect with the predominantly black audiences that were wildly enthusiastic about the Whalers, and Bob Marley was unhappy with his relative obscurity especially in light of Nash's successes with Marley's own compositions. Left in Britain, without even money to return to Jamaica, and seemingly at another professional dead end, the Whalers finally made the business connection that brought them out of the shadows. Chris Blackwell was an upper-crust white Jamaican descended from the originators of the prestigious British Cross and Blackwell Food Company. Although he attended Harrow, he returned to Jamaica and in his early 20s dabbled in various business ventures, including the jukebox business. This exposed him to various members of the Jamaican music industry and prompted him to form his own record label, Island Records, in 1958 with money from his parents. His business model consisted of acquiring original music and either releasing it on Island or licensing it to larger record companies. In 1964, Blackwell's first major success occurred when he produced 15-year-old Millie Small's ska version of My Boy Lollipop, acknowledged as the first ska-style hit to achieve international popularity. Licensed to Fontana Records, a subsidiary of Philips, the song sold 6 million copies globally and allowed Blackwell entree to mainstream rock and roll. He relocated to England, where he then got involved with the Spencer Davis Group, a band that consisted of, among others, 15-year-old Steve Winwood. Winwood would eventually form Traffic, which in the early 70s was one of many successful island recording artists that included Cat Stevens, Roxy Music, and King Crimson. By 1972, Blackwell had completely disconnected from the Jamaican music scene, but when a British music promoter who had worked with the Whalers on their UK tour interceded, he agreed to meet. Impressed by the Whalers' demeanor, determination, and original musical ideas, he agreed to front the band 4,000 British pounds, a considerable sum of money. In return, with no contract in place, the Whalers agreed to record their next album for Island, a deal that the industry laughed at, believing that Blackwell had been hoodwinked by the streetwise Rastas. The Whalers flew back to Jamaica, not wanting to let down one of the few music industry people who actually invested money to help them. In three lengthy, determined sessions in October of 1972, the Whalers were to record the album that was to be known as Catch a Fire, Jamaican slang for Go to Hell. Within days, Bob Marley on his own was back in London, mixing the final record with input from Chris Blackwell. 
Blackwell made some radical changes, highlighting Marley vocals, downplaying the bass and drum, and removing other elements and replacing them with lead guitar from the likes of Muscle Shoals Sessions guitarist Wayne Perkins. Blackwell's intent was to soften the rougher reggae sound in an attempt to market the first reggae album ever promoted to an international market. While the album sold modestly when it was released in December 1972, it received tremendous critical acclaim from the music industry press and, following the high-profile success of the soundtrack of the cult-hit Jamaican film The Harder They Come, a compilation of reggae featuring Jimmy Cliff and also an island recording, interest in this new musical genre skyrocketed. Chris Blackwell hastily prepared for a follow-up effort. He reestablished his Jamaican roots by purchasing a dilapidated mansion in a posh Kingston neighborhood at 56 Hope Road, a house that Bob Marley eventually purchased outright. Marley's wife Rita was domiciled at Bull Bay, 10 miles outside of Kingston, with the couple's four children, including a son, Stephen, born on April 20, 1972. Marley spent much of his time at Hope Road pursuing various relatively open romantic relationships, including one with Esther Anderson, a high-profile employee of Island, as well as an actress and model who starred in several Hollywood feature films. Despite these distractions, the focus remained squarely on music. The second Island Whalers album, Burnin', was quickly recorded in April 1973 and released in October. It contained two of Marley's most iconic songs, Get Up, Stand Up, and I Shot the Sheriff. A tour to support this album was launched in the UK with dates in the US to follow, but despite their growing reputation, the Whalers were consigned to small college and club venues on a grueling 28-show schedule that transpired mostly over May of 1973. Again, the damp climate, incompatible cuisine, and budget constraints meant for a miserable slog that concluded with a respite in Jamaica before the whalers proceeded to the U.S. in July. However, upon returning to the Caribbean, Bunny Whaler announced that he would never tour under such conditions again. Whaler also had issues with the direction of the band, blaming some of that on Blackwell, but also acknowledging years later that he wanted to escape the push for a more commercial sound and figured this was a good time to launch his own solo career. He was replaced by Joe Higgs, and off the New Whalers went in July to Boston and New York, where they opened at Max's Kansas City for the relatively unknown Bruce Springsteen. A subsequently disastrous fall tour started with the Whalers getting fired by Sly Stone as his opening act, leaving them high and dry in Las Vegas of all places, and ended with a sweep of the grimy industrial northern towns of the UK, helping to divide Peter Tosh and Bob Marley permanently. Tosh felt that he was being eased out of the picture by Blackwell, and was especially angered that this was occurring as the band was approaching widespread commercial success. At the conclusion of the Burnin tour, he told Marley he was going solo as well. Years later, Tosh would still remain angry with both Blackwell and Bob Marley. The conflict that pervaded Marley's musical career was mirrored in the volatile politics of Jamaican society. Throughout colonial times and well into the 20th century, the island was split into a have-have-not culture in which a conservative upper and middle class attempted to maintain the status quo at the expense of a greatly impoverished, much larger lower class. This class conflict was illustrated by the two major political parties who competed for leadership of the country, 
the leftist People's National Party and the more conservative Jamaica Labor Party. The latter ruled Jamaica throughout the 50s and 60s before being swept out of power by Michael Manley, a member of a prominent Jamaican political family, mainly by appealing to the impoverished majority with a reform platform focused on economic equality. While Manley did implement some fundamental changes like instituting a minimum wage, land ownership reform, and increasing funding for education, he also reinforced diplomatic ties with Cuba and identified Jamaica as part of a potential coalition between the non-aligned movement and the Soviet Union against what he described as imperialism. Such rhetoric alarmed the American government, concerned that Jamaica might devolve into another communist country on its Caribbean doorstep. The Jamaican government also renounced agreements with major American corporate giants like Reynolds, Kaiser, and Alcoa over fees paid for and ownership of Jamaican bauxite, a key ingredient in the production of aluminum. The Jamaican government eventually successfully negotiated a sale of control of these companies' refining operations, a development that was grudgingly agreed to, but also that engendered American governmental and corporate hostility. The competition between the two political parties escalated drastically in the 70s, with political parties paying already powerful criminal gangs to foment violence and assassination. Allegations that the American CIA became involved by providing elements of the Jamaican Labor Party with weapons and logistical support are widely accepted. Housing developments built by both parties while in power became armed garrisons, allied with one party or the other, protecting neighborhood turf and occasionally lashing out at other rival garrisons. By the mid-70s, hundreds of Jamaicans had been killed or injured in politically related violence. It took several years and a higher profile for this unrest to directly impact Bob Marley. Meanwhile, in 1974, he was attempting to reorganize the Whalers and decide on his own next musical direction. He needed to replace the two most prominent departed, which he did with a trio of female backing vocalists that included his wife, Marcia Griffiths, and Judy Mowat, dubbed as the I-3. He recruited various sessions musicians, including a horn section and an American lead guitarist named Al Anderson, combining them with the Barrett brothers for his next recording, Natty Dread, which included newer renditions of Whaler standards such as Lively Up Yourself and what would be the song that eventually took him to the next level, No Woman, No Cry. Stylistically, this album established the female backing vocalists who recorded with Bob Marley for the rest of his life. It also began some commercial skullduggery that indicated that Marley had adopted some of the business practices of his associates in the Jamaican music industry. To allow the Whalers and Marley in particular to escape their contract from Danny Sims and sign with Island, Chris Blackwell negotiated a new deal that gave Sims a small percentage of future sales and exclusive future publishing rights to Marley-composed material. To skirt this obligation, Marley began assigning friends and other musicians with songwriting credit for his efforts, cutting Sims' company out of the publishing rights, a short-term solution with eventually major implications. 1974 provided another milestone from an unlikely source. Eric Clapton emerged from three years of heroin addiction and transported several hand-picked musicians to the Miami, Florida area to record a comeback album. He also hired local sessions guitarist George Terry, who was a devotee of Jamaican reggae and Bob Marley music in particular. 
Terry convinced Clapton, who wasn't crazy about the idea, to record I Shot the Sheriff. The virtuoso guitarist agreed, only after giving the song a much lighter, poppier rendition. Released in June of 1974, the song became and remains Clapton's only number one single of his career. It also brought the music of Bob Marley to the attention of a larger, more mainstream audience around the world. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Bob Marley. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Catch a Fire by Timothy White, So Much Things to Say, The Oral History of Bob Marley by Roger Steffens, Bob Marley, A Life by Gary Steckles, and Bob Marley, Stories Behind the Songs by Maureen Sheridan. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <music>